looking at the VBS schedule to see who I dismissed now. That's, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> All week long, VBS, it's hard to get out of your blood. Revelation chapter 19, the other end of the Bible. In Sunday school, we were in Genesis. We are almost at the back of the book today. Uh, Revelation 19, we have this wedding feast of the Lamb. And uh, this was a week of, of learning a lot in this passage. I looked at the passage and I see you know, my heading is rejoicing in heaven. We have the bride of the, the marriage of the Lamb. I saw this positive, happy, fun stuff. And as I worked on this over the course of the week and as I thought about it and read it, I just started kind of changing my opinion. Okay, so this is going to be not quite the positive thing I thought it was going to be when I first looked at it. But just to start with that, uh, married people, think of your wedding for a minute. Okay? Think of your wedding. Men, don't ask your wife. I have two questions for you. One, what color were you wearing? And two, who decided you would wear that color? <laughs> <laughs> because I think I was wearing kind of a powder baby blue tux, and I don't know why. <laughs> I assume Joan picked that. I honestly don't know. Maybe I picked it. But if I did, I'm ashamed of myself. <laughs> okay, any, guy, any guys out there go, man, I don't remember for sure what I was wearing? It wouldn't, wouldn't tell. Okay, wise man, wiser than me. Joan is out of the room right now, so I'm okay. But she's used to me, so that's the way it is. Uh, and, and uh, you know, but ladies, what color did you wear? <laughs> and not always, but usually the answer is white, because that's just the way we do it. The bride wears white. You know, it didn't always used to be that way. I, I a wedding picture of my mom and dad. She was wearing. A, she wasn't wearing a wedding gown. She was wearing a nice dress. Uh, and a lot of people got married like that. It's like as as we get more affluent as a society, things like that maybe become more important. Lots of people, they just put on the best clothes they had, and that's what they got married in. And, and, but the bride of Christ will wear white. The bride of Christ is dressed in white. And that's where this message gets hard, actually, because she has to be worthy to wear white. That's what we find as we look at this passage. Look down at Revelation 19, uh, verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready, for it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And we find in order for the bride to wear white, she has to be able to dress in white. And what we find is, is not finally the wedding is happening, Finally, the bride is wearing white. That's what we find here, and it's, it's kind of scary to think about. Uh, what's another thing that's just fascinating as you look at this, Revelation 19 does not start with praise because of the wedding. It starts with praise because of the judgment on the prostitute. And it moves directly from the judgment on the prostitute to the wedding because the bride is wearing white. Uh, and, and so we're going to look at that. We're going to start not with the bride but the prostitute. Then we're going to see rejoicing... Uh, because the bride is prostitute is judged and the bride comes forth. And then we're going to look at what it took to dress the bride in white. So chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. Let me read this. <clears throat> 
After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne there came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you her servants, you who fear him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the great voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready, and it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Now these two events might just be disconnected, and it's coincidence that they're back to back. In Scripture, I don't believe in coincidences. I think there's a reason for this. And I want to tell you, this connection feels wrong. A connection between the prostitute and the bride, even in contrast, it feels like it's in poor taste, right? At best, it just doesn't feel good. And I'm, going to, I'm just going to say it. I, I don't like it. I don't think it feels good. But I think there is an intentionality behind this that says you don't miss this message. There is a reason these are put side by side. You know, there are a lot of intentional contrasts in Revelation. You may not, I wrote down a few of them. You know, the, the, the sevens we have in the, in the Revelation, there are seven churches, seven spirits before the throne. The lamb that was slain had seven horns and seven eyes. There are three sets of seven judgments. In contrast, the dragon has seven heads. The beast has seven heads. That's an intentional contrast. Right? Those sevens are, are, are contrasted. The Antichrist is introduced wearing white and riding on a white horse. When Jesus Christ comes in judgment, he is wearing white and riding on a white horse. That's an intentional contrast. God marks the 144,000 with his mark. The beast marks people with the mark of the beast. God judges the city of Babylon. He replaces it with the city of New Jerusalem. These are not accidental contrasts. They're intentional. He is drawing a distinction between what God is drawing a distinction between what he does and what the world does, what the world is like and what he is like. And it is here only after the prostitute is judged that the wedding of the bride comes about. The contrast of these two women, these two symbolic women, because they're not women, they're symbolic of something more, is not accidental. It is intentional. And we do not want to miss it. So we saw in chapter 17 and 18, the prostitute. We saw, we saw uh, that man's infatuation with false religion in chapter 17. Man's infatuation with money as an idol, worshiping mammon rather than God. Those two things are dealt with in chapters 17 and 18. And after those things are removed and we see this rejoicing over the judgment of the prostitute, once the prostitute is removed and judged, then we have the bride is dressed in white. Those things must be destroyed before the bride is ready because the bride is the church and the church is made up of many of the people who are also infatuated with the false religions and the church is made up of people who are infatuated with the love of money. And in order for the church to be white, the church must be purged of these things. Doesn't mean the people must be Per, I mean, the people must be removed. The people must be purified. They must be made better. 
The bride must be made pure before the wedding of the Lamb. Uh, and, and so we find um, the, the, instead of anxiously waiting for the music that will let her walk down the aisle, right? Typical wedding. Yeah, I, I've been up here for, for I'm not, I don't know how many weddings. Not, not all the weddings I've done have been done here, but it's a common thing that to be up here with the groom, and I'm standing like this, and he's standing there, and I'm saying, just relax, wiggle your toes. <laughs> don't want you passing out here. So what about them mariners? <laughs> Won two in a row the other day. <laughs> yeah. and, and we're just, we're, what are we, we're waiting for the bride. And she's back there saying, huh, I'm going to make him wait just a little bit. I don't know what she's doing back there. But, but we're standing up there waiting, and she's, she's getting ready, and she's just going to, you know, and, and we're, just, we're not waiting for the bride to, to appear. We're waiting for the, in this case, I mean, it's never happened this way in the wedding I've done, but in this case, we're waiting for the bride to be worthy. She's not ready yet. And Jesus, the groom, is up there, and he has been waiting because he is pure. He is ready. He is worthy. But his bride is not worthy. And, 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 and so it hasn't happened yet. The, 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 she's back there flirting with the ushers is what she's doing. She's back there flirting with other things instead of focusing on her groom, which every bride is, I'm sorry, she's either focused on the groom or focused on her dress. It's, just, it's one of those two things. I don't know that. I've never actually asked a bride. I'm just reading that into it. She's not doing what she ought to be doing. She's not focused on her groom. She's focused on other things. And the bride must be pure before the marriage of the lamb. And the judgment of the prostitute is an important part of that. Okay, great rejoicing in heaven. Verses 1, 2, three. One, two and 3. I heard what seemed to be a loud voice, the voice of a great multitude in heaven. So it is a great multitude that we are hearing here, right? Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and right, are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Hallelujah, praise God, salvation and glory belong to Him. He deserves all the praise we can give Him, and His glory is displayed in His actions, and in this case, in His judgments. The judgments of God display His glory. And, and in verse 2, we find specifically because He has judged the great prostitute. She deserved judgment. For one thing, she corrupted the whole earth, and for another thing, she's guilty of the blood of the saints. And the corruption and the blood go hand in hand. Think about this. Would Satan rather kill you or corrupt you? Because he'd rather corrupt you. And the, and the logic behind that's really simple. If he kills you, you simply die. But if he corrupts you, he gets to put you on display. Right? He gains... Now, he doesn't, he doesn't want, not want to kill you because he values your life. Satan does not value your life. He could care less about your, whether you're alive or dead. You are not important enough. I am not important enough for him to care if we die or live. Our lives have no value to him, but our corruption does. If, 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 if the pastor goes out and gets you know, caught, displayed for some horrible sin, that is a corruption Satan takes great delight in. It doesn't have to be the pastor. It can be any person of Christian standing, any person who is saved, because you know, the world looks at that. And if you've been saved for two weeks, then the people around you know what's different. And if they see you after that, then turn around and go into sin. That's enough for them to say, ha, I knew it didn't work. 
Satan has, sees value in your corruption. The prostitute has corrupted the earth and is guilty of the blood of the saints. And it's almost like those that could not be corrupted, well, then we'll kill them. Uh, it, it seems to be what the, the prostitute does. And many people have been corrupted. Many Christians have. And the prostitute is guilty of both those things, corrupting the saints and killing the saints. And the multitude in heaven rejoices and praises God for his justice in judging this prostitute that has done this to his church. Except the church was a willing accomplice with it, but he is just in doing that. It is just punishment. It is fair punishment. It is right punishment for what is going on. Uh, here on earth, people continually find fault for, with God's justice. How could God be fair and judge this person? How could God be fair and judge that person? But in heaven, where the perspective is different, they look and say, your judgment is right. God, your judgment is right. We see this. This is the just punishment for what she has done. And then we move on to verses 4 and 5, and we find praise coming from another avenue, right? There was a multitude, uh, a great multitude in heaven praising God there in 1, one 2, and 3. Chapter, or verse 4, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. That's all they say. The, tw the four living creatures and the 24 elders. That's all they say is amen, hallelujah. The 24 elders seem to represent the, the Old Testament believers, the New Testament believers. You know, if we go back a little bit, 24 does not seem to be a significant number in the Bible, but 12 is. We have 12 tribes of Israel. We have 12 apostles in the New Testament. Seems to be the combination of those two. Don't know that for sure. It just makes a lot of sense. Uh, we find the, the four living creatures are always found. If you remember, when we were back there, we went to Isaiah, four creatures around the throne. We go to Ezekiel, two different occasions, four creatures around the throne. We go to Revelation chapter 4, four creatures around the throne. They're not always described the same, but they're the same four creatures. And, and they're always found in the presence of the throne of God. God. And we see that. And, and these two, these elders and these, these creatures simply say, Amen, Hallelujah. Amen. Yes. Amen. So be it. Praise God. They, 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 it almost seems like they don't need to be mentioned. They're, they're not saying anything. Well, you know what they're saying? They're saying, I agree. That, that, that's what they're saying. They're saying, I agree and I praise God for what he's doing. I see what God is doing. They are witnesses of what God is doing. And they say, God, what you're doing is right. And I agree. And, and, and maybe it's that they've been watching this play out for such a long time. You know, sometimes you ever watch something play out and you wonder, how is this going to end? You know, it's like, like reading a good mystery or watching a good mystery. And you go, how are they going to wrap this thing up? And, and if they don't do a good job, you're just so disappointed. Don't they know they left this hanging and that hanging? They didn't settle this thing and that thing, and you feel cheated. I've, I've read some books like that, and I go, you've got to be kidding me. This is, they might as well have not written this book. It's a terrible book. <laughs> it was so good until they got to the end, and it didn't end it. <laughs> These guys, they've been seeing it all, and they see it, and they say, amen, and they praise God because he has done so well. And then a voice from the throne says, Praise God, you who fear him. Verse 5, From the throne there came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, a, a small and great. And the voice from the throne seems to represent God himself. Again, don't really know that, but he, God is also in agreement. And, and that all seems to be, you know, if nothing else, we have the first is the pro prostitute, second is transitional, saying, God, what you're doing, we see it, and it's good. And the third is the, the but we find these three sets of praises in here. Uh, and uh, 
So we, we move on to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder cry out. So we have, again, a great multitude, and it's a powerful voice. Uh, it, it's it's a, a deep voice. It's a roar uh, of many waters, the sound of mighty peals of thunder. This is, this, and this is a rejoicing voice because of the, the, the marriage of the Lamb. And, and the praise continues, and it's focused on that. Praise God because his marriage has come, right? Verses 6 in the first half of 7. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice rejoice and exult uh, and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And this is, this, this is just rejoicing because the marriage of the Lamb. We've been waiting for this. You know, it's, we had, this is something, this is the marriage of the, you used to call it the marriage of the century? <laughs> yeah. which, which English prince is getting married now? <laughs> yes. this, is, this is way, way way more than this. this is the marriage of eternity right the uniting the uniting of christ with his church right christ and his church are joined finally because while they have in a sense so far it's going to be in a very much we'll we'll understand it by and by you know what what all this means i think at this point maybe we don't but it is time to rejoice and give him glory this is what we've been waiting for and, and then it says on and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. And the bride is... The, I, I don't know how to do this without inserting the word finally. We don't find the word finally in there, but, but it, I feel like it bleeds through the passage. The bride is finally ready. The bride is finally in white. It's a beautiful picture the bride in white. You know, there's, there's multiple uh, 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 treasure of pictures of the wedding of the Lamb, right, uh, uh, out there. And they're, they're beautiful. But getting there has been ugly. It has been ugly getting there. The groom has been standing at the altar, tall and straight and immaculate, and the bride has been swimming in slop right? Swimming in sin. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. You know, there is in scripture a consistent call to be dressed in white. Good job, John. See that white you're wearing? (laughs) Someone got the memo. It wasn't me. (laughs) No, sorry. Uh, There's a consistent call to be dressed in white. And white clearly represents holiness. Angels are always dressed in white. Now, when I say that, not every passage actually describes what an angel looks like. When Gabriel shows up to Mary, it doesn't say, and he was dressed in white. It's just, you know, a man appeared, and he said, don't be afraid, and he tells her this stuff. And we don't get a description of him. But every time an angel is described, he's he's described as dressed in white. Uh, You know, you you have, uh, if you go to... um, the tombs, the different guard, tomb passages where they, they go and find the, stroll, the, the stone rolled away. The angels are dressed in white, usually dazzling white, like you can't hardly look at them. And, and, and they're, they're hard to look at because they're dressed in white. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is up on the mountain. He's got Peter, James, and John with him. They, they take a little nap because it's taken a long time. They wake up. They see Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah, and all three are dressed in white. Dazzling white, as white as no launderer could make it, right? Uh, And it's the kind of white you cover your eyes from. The 24 elders that we've talked about dressed before the throne, before the throne, chapter 4, verse 4, Revelation, they're dressed in white, 
right? Uh, the armies of heaven, Revelation 19.4, just, uh, not 19.4, not 19.14, just next week, by the way. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, <laughs> right? Everything is white. White, is, white represents purity. White represents holiness. The bride of Christ should be dressed in white. That's not hard to see. It should be that way. The church is called to dress in white. Stay in Revelation, but flip back to, to chapter 3. Uh, and we find that in chapters 3 and 4, we find the message to the seven churches. Two of the churches, it talks about dressing in white. Revelation chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. We have this church called the Church of Sardis. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And we find there are those among you who are worthy to be dressed in white. That's what he's saying. There are some of, he, has, he has a lot of problems with the church in Sardis, but he says there are some of you who can dress in white still. There are some of you still worthy. Those who overcome, you will be dressed in white. You know, there's a concept uh, out there called second virginity. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before, but essentially it's when a person who has led a life that is somewhat immoral recognizes that what they have done is immoral and they make the decision not to be that way anymore. You can never physically regain what was lost, right? You, you don't, it doesn't physically underdo anything, but it does, you can in your character, regain what was lost. And you can gain that character of purity and holiness. And, and that's what God is allowing here. God is not saying one strike you're out or two strikes you're out or three strikes you're out. He's saying you can regain that pure character and if you regain the pure character, you will be dressed in white. That's what he's saying to the church in Sardis. He is giving them that gift if they will take it. But they have to take it. And, and we're going to talk in a little bit about how we become dressed in white. Because you, you, you might be thinking, well, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, therefore I am made pure, white as snow. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. You know, there are two arenas. I don't want to jump all over where I'm going, so I'm going to stop there. But one is heavenly and one is earthly. And we're talking about the earthly arena here. The earthly arena of holiness. Uh, the church of Laodicea, chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, is, is called to dress in white. I'm going to start at verse 15. I know your works. Okay, I want to hang on that for a minute just to keep the context here. In the passage, he's not talking about salvation. He's talking about their works, right? So he's talking to a church, a group of saved people, and he says, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold, cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And he says, I, I know your works. And because of your works, you're naked. You're exposed. He says, I urge you to buy from me white clothes. 
I mean, that's one of the things in the list. And it's, it's, he's talking about our works here. He's not talking about salvation here. He's talking about our works. And he says, buy from me white clothes. Do that. Do the works that it takes to do this. Uh, and then we find the victorious church that is dressed in white, still back early in Revelation, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. We find the martyrs, right? Uh, we find at first, first, we find the martyrs under the throne. Chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? He says, chapter 19, it's coming. Uh, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And he says they were given a white robe. The martyrs were given a white robe. This is the victorious church. The, by the way, martyrs are victorious. It sounds kind of Muslim when I say it that way. It's not. This is a very, they, they aren't killers for Christ. They are martyrs for Christ. Uh, and and, and uh, they are given white. Revelation chapter 7. Verse 9, we find again martyrs. I'm going to read verses 9 and then skip down to verses 13 and 14. 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Verse 13, And then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And the martyrs are found. The victorious church is wearing white. The victorious followers of Christ are wearing white because they are victorious. The church can do this. But what do we find when we look at the church today? You know, when you go around and you look around this thing that constitute the church, constitutes the church of Jesus Christ today, what do you find? Do you find a church worthy of wearing white? Or do you go, good grief, no. At best, we're whitewashed. We, not meaning us here, because of course we're, you know, I hate to say this, I hate to sound bad. I really think this is a pretty good church. You know, I think as churches go, we're doing pretty well. Don't ever think we've arrived. Don't ever think, you know, and, and, and there's a, a, I know I've shared this before, but it's just a simple uh, principle of preaching. You're not preaching to the people out there. You're preaching to the people in here. God never sent prophets to anyone but the people who needed to hear his word. He didn't send prophets to people who did need, didn't need to hear it. He sent prophets to people who did need to hear it. You need to hear this and consider your own holiness. And, and, and don't say, boy, I know that church over there. Boy, are they not clean. But when we are, but I'm I am talking about the church worldwide here. Uh, and, and if we look at the church worldwide, and, and, and whitewashed is maybe the best word to describe. Whitewashed is made to look white, but not to be white. Whitewashed is found twice in the Bible. The whole Bible, the phrase is found twice. Both times it is a condemnation of religious leaders. Once it is Jesus Christ talking to the scribes and Pharisees, he calls them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Paul uh, tells, tells the high priest at another point that he is whitewashed. 
And it is only used to, to describe the hypocrisy of religious people trying to pretend they are pure. But they are not remotely pure. And if you are pure, you don't need to pretend to be pure. And if you are pretending to be pure, you're not fooling God. You may fool a few people, but you're not fooling God. He knows the difference. Both times the phrases are used in condemnation. And the church today is shamefully far from right. The church today makes every compromise and every excuse. The church today is full of people who believe the most ungodly things and claim Christ. And the church gathers around them and says, yes! And you go, how can that be? What kind of church can do that? The church today allows every kind of evil, even to point sometimes endorsing very ki uh, every kind of evil. And, and I, I want to come back to these two arenas I mentioned. There are two arenas where the church must be white. And the first is simply that arena of salvation. Psalm 51 7 is a verse you may know. You may not know it, Psalm 51 7, but you know it. It says, Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. It goes on and says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Hyssop is a picture. Uh, the hyssop was the branch that when on the Passover, when they, they, they used it as a paintbrush and they dipped it in the blood of the lamb and they used it to paint the blood around the door frame. Right? So when he says, Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean, he's saying, Cleanse me by the blood of the lamb. And this is clearly a reference to salvation, right? Save me and I shall be clean. This is, this is one of those arenas uh, 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 that we are dealing with. Salvation makes us clean. This is the arena of salvation, right? This is the arena of, of eternal things, and we are made clean and we are made pure. But that's not the only thing we find in Scripture, right? Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. This is that awesome passage that says... Uh, let us come, let us reason together. That's what God says. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Uh, I shall, uh, let's look at the passage a little bit better. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Wash yourselves. And I want you to know right off the bat the difference between what David said in Psalm 51. David, in Psalm 51, David says, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Isaiah says, wash yourselves. Now, I want you to not miss this. Isaiah wrote his verse 300 years after David wrote Psalm 51. More or less. I mean, don't, don't make that an exact number. But you get the idea. Isaiah was not ignorant of David's writings. Isaiah was not ignorant of Psalm 51. Isaiah was also a priest, right? He served in the temple. Isaiah was a priest. He was familiar with Psalm 51. He knew David said, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. But he writes, wash yourselves. He's working in another arena. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Please the widow's cause. And then he says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. He's calling us to do the work of making ourselves white. 
There's two arenas we're talking about here. There's the arena of what he does for us, and there's the arena, the arena of personal holiness. In your life, you have the arena of salvation, what God does for you. In your life, you have the arena of personal holiness, what you do for God. And he, and he says something really fascinating. He says, cease to do evil, learn to do good. Because <laughs> a lot of times people think holiness is simply not doing certain bad things. If I don't do those bad things, then I will be holy. That's not holy, that's sterile. <laughs> says, cease to do evil, learn to do good, right? And then he says, come, let us reason. And, and by the way, after learn to do good, he says, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. He says, take care of those people who need taken care of. That's the good we're to do. We are to do good, practical good in this world. Revelation 3, 17 and 18, we already looked at, but it started with, I hammered on that word, works. He says, I know your works. He's talking the arena of works. We, need, we have this arena of personal holiness. If we want to be dressed in white, we, it's, you, you need to be saved. You can't, if you're not saved and you're trying to, to, to dress in white, then you are slapping whitewash on. Right? And one, one of the phrases I use at school is you're putting lipstick on a pig. When you're done, it may be a pretty pig. <laughs> it's still a pig. Right? You're whitewashing something full of dead man's bones. You need personal salvation. You need Jesus Christ as your Savior. And that makes you white as snow. Wash me and I should be white as snow. But you need personal holiness as well. If you want to be the bride of Christ dressed in white. That's the second arena where the church is not white. We get to Revelation 19. Go back there once more. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. The bride is finally ready, finally dressed in white. You know what it takes? Yeah, I used the phrase a week or two ago, God never wastes the pain. You know, Revelation does something new for the church. It purifies the church. I talked about that it deals with, with the false religions, and it removes that. It deals with the love of money, and it removes that. It also takes the bride and purifies her. It took seven years of tribulation to do that. It took seven years of tribulation to purify the bride and to make the bride ready. But it has come. And the bride is dressed in white, and of course, there is tremendous rejoicing in heaven. Because this is what it is all about and always has been about. And it finally gets to happen. And the church is going to be united to Jesus Christ. Okay, you and I, we can't make the whole church pure today. <laughs> you know, we are really small drops in a really big ocean. We're trying to make the church pure. But you know what we can do? We can make our drop pure. Right? We can make our drop pure. If by any chance you're listening to this and you go, I haven't done that salvation thing. I've been trying to be good enough to get to heaven. I've been nothing but, but whitewashing myself on the outside and you realize that Jesus Christ is ready to save you. I, I could say today, but I'll say right now. 
Because that cross is there not for something Jesus is going to do for you. That cross is there because of something Jesus has done for you. He has already died. He has already paid the price. All you have to do is go to him and accept the gift of forgiveness and eternal life that he gives. And you can be, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And, and, and that makes you white. We can dress ourselves in white of salvation. And once saved, come to God in honesty, in confession, in integrity. Avoid evil. Do good. Don't accept whitewash. <laughs> Isn't whitewash tempting? Isn't it so tempting? So long as I can make people think I'm good enough that I can be accepted... I'm just not going to talk about this one thing I do in public because as long as people don't know it, then I'm okay. Isn't whitewash tempting? It is. I, I'm, I'll, I'll confess, man, I'm a whitewasher. You want to be dressed in white, don't whitewash. Make yourself holy. Be pure. Let's bow in prayer. Lord Jesus, I ask you to forgive me. I ask on behalf of anyone else here, Father, that we don't pretend to be dressed in white, that we don't play at dressing in white, but that we will seek purity, that we will seek holiness, that we will avoid the sin, that we will seek to do good. Let us be the blessing you call us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.